Welcome, Pioneering Today podcast listeners. I'm excited for today's episode. We actually have um, two guests, but my first guest is Angie Schneider, and Angie is going to be sharing with us today about planning and putting in a fruit orchard. So for those of you who are looking to add fruit trees or just put your first ones in, this is going to be all for you. And I'm really excited to talk to Angie too because we have a fruit orchard, um, but there's definitely some things that I've learned and some things that I want to improve on it. So I'm really excited to pick her brain and just get into putting in fruit because fruit's one of my favorite things um, to grow at home actually. So welcome Angie. Well, thanks so much for having me, Melissa. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm super excited. And I have to say, you have a little bit of a of a of a drawl, and I'm jealous. I love it. <laughs> you no, know, us Texans, we don't really have an accent. It's everyone else who has the accent. Oh, I hear you. My dad's from North Carolina. I I was born and raised in the Pacific Northwest, but he's from North Carolina, and so it's so funny because whenever he gets on the phone and he's talking to someone from what he calls back home, back in North Carolina. I can totally tell, even if I don't know, because he starts to speak with his accent again. <laughs> so I just, I love it. I don't have the drawl. I try to fake it sometimes, but no. <laughs> so I'm going to, I'm going to love listening to you as we go through here. So I'm, I'm excited, excited, can't even speak. I'm so excited, apparently, <laughs> uh, to talk fruit trees. And so Angie and I were talking a little bit before because I'm in the Pacific Northwest and she's in Texas. And so for me right now is when we're putting in and planting all of our fruit trees. But for those of you in the warmer climate, Angie, you were saying that now isn't really the best time to put fruit trees in in warmer climates. Right. We live along the Texas Gulf Coast um, near the Houston, Corpus Christi area, and we Ideally, our fruit trees need to go in in the fall, probably October, November. Um, and the reason is because our summers are so hot, and yet our, our winters are pretty mild. So the few cold snaps we get don't hurt new trees, but, um, but our heat can just burn them up. And I have planted fruit trees in, um, in March before, even in April. And of the ones that we have planted that late, only a couple have survived in and it's just because it gets so hot, they've not had a chance to really develop a root system. Um, and then I'm not always the best at watering during the summer. <laughs> so, you know, when we were, we're having to hand water our garden at this point, and so that seems to take all my watering time and the fruit trees get, get somewhat neglected. So it is best if you live where it's where you have mild winters but a hot summer to go ahead and plant your orchard in the fall um, or just you know, if you're going to plant it in the spring, that's fine because every nursery I go into right now has fruit trees and it's so hard to not buy them. <laughs> um, so go ahead and plant them, but just know that first summer you're really, really going to have to keep an eye on them and water them deeply and often. Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny because here in the Pacific Northwest, we typically um, are quite rainy and wet, but two years ago I had put in a couple new apple trees in the springtime, and as summer came, I wasn't very diligent about watering them once a week, just because we normally aren't that dry here, and I just really wasn't thinking a whole lot of it, and I actually lost one of them, and so when I went to replace it, I tell you what, last year, I made sure every Sunday that I was out there watering that, that fruit 
surgery and it, it did, it went fine. But so it is really important that first year that they get a good stand with the watering. Right. Yeah. And so I was excited to talk to you too about with fruit trees because um, we kind of had this problem when we first started planting our fruit trees um, because we didn't have anything um, on our homestead. It was we bought it as raw, undeveloped land. So there, there wasn't any existing orchards or anything like that that we were going into. So we had to put it all in ourselves. And so um, the bare root trees are usually less expensive, especially the younger ones. You just have to wait longer to get the fruit. Right. And so when I put it, I only could afford two of each kind. And when I was buying them, I didn't do my research quite as well as I probably should have on self-pollinating and cross-pollinating varieties. Right. So for those who don't really know what that difference is or why that's important, do you want to kind of expound on that a little bit? Sure. Um, some fruit trees are self-pollinating, which means that they have the ability to make fruit all by themselves. And so you only need one of those trees. Of course, you can have more if you just like more, but um, but you don't have to. And I think that's really important to know, especially for a um, for um, for a small homestead, you know, an urban or suburban homestead where you don't have a lot of acreage. It's nice to know that you don't have to have um, tons and tons of trees to get fruit. So some of the most common um, self-pollinating uh, fruit trees are apricots, um, pomegranate, citrus, fig, most grapevines, persimmons, most peaches, most berries, and European plums. Although European plums will do better and some will, some berries do better if they have a different variety to cross-pollinate with them. Um, also, there are there is an apple tree that is self-pollinating, but again, it will give you bigger apples and better tasting apples if it has another variety of apple tree to pollinate with it. So um, I made this mistake at the very beginning when we first started. When we bought our property, we live on an acre and a half right outside of town, and we bought our property four, almost four years ago. And when we bought it, it had a mature lemon tree and two mature pecan trees on it. And we set about planting other trees and uh, berries. So I bought some um, on a whim because they were there at the nursery. <laughs> I bought um, some blueberry trees or bushes. And here we have to grow them in pots because our soil is not acidic enough. And so we, um, I put them in pots and I did all those great things. And then I realized that I had heard you needed more than one. So I bought four. Well, I bought four of all the exact same kind. Oh, no. <laughs> Because, and I was wondering why I wasn't getting very many berries, and a, and a friend of mine, an older gentleman friend said, uh, Angie, cross-pollinating, when they say you need more than one, they really mean varieties, not plants. <laughs> <laughs> so, that was a huge lesson, but I was so glad I learned it with blueberries and some, instead of something much more expensive, you know, like, um, you know, like apple trees. So, we, um, so we have... Um, corrected that. So for cross-pollination, you need um, different varieties that bloom at the same time. And that's the key. They need to bloom at the same time. So if you have early blueberries, you need to plant another variety 
that that is an early blueberry. You don't want a late summer blueberry because they're not going to bloom at the same time and they will not cross pollinate. Um, another tip for especially small homesteads and urban uh, gardeners is that you don't necessarily need for cross pollination. You you don't necessarily need two um, of the same, like say pear trees, you don't need two pear trees on your property. If your neighbor has a pear tree, then you just need to find out what variety they have and get a different variety. They need to be within 50 feet of each other and that is usually doable in an urban setting. Um, so that's a good way to make some use of your, of your, um, of your land, the space that you have. And then the most common, um, um, trees that need a cross-pollinator are apples, pears, Japanese plums, cherries, and most nut trees. So there you have that. So don't make that mistake. <laughs> yeah, and we, um, I have a, a couple, I have one self-pollinating apple, but like you said, it doesn't, it didn't, I wasn't getting a lot of fruit set on it. I had a lot of blossoms, but a lot of the fruit wasn't setting. And so, then when I went to buy my fruit trees again, <laughs> I really started looking into the different cross-pollinators. And apples, here in the Pacific Northwest, apples grow quite well for us. We can't grow citrus. Um, you know, you can put it in a pot and bring it indoors if you have a, a large enough home. But we can't do the citrus fruits here. So we primarily do apples and cherries and plums. There's a few peach varieties that will grow up here. Um, but it's kind of chilly for them. So apples was my my thing that I really wanted. And so we went. And one of the great things is um, is the crab apple tree. And like you were saying, to really pay attention to when the variety of fruit that you buy when it blooms, because you'll have early season, mid season, and late season. And the great thing about the crab apple is people don't really like to eat the crab apples because they're quite sour, but it has a super long flowering time. And so a crab apple will pollinate almost any other apple tree, regardless of its um early, mid, or late, just because the crabapple has such a long bloom time and it's compatible to cross-pollinate so many different varieties. So we ended up getting a crabapple um, just to kind of take care of that whole problem. <laughs> oh, that is a great idea. Yeah, so the, for, for me, the crabapple is great. And then plus the crabapple has a lot of natural pectin in it. So I plan on putting those crabapples to use um, and making some jams and jelly. So there's kind of the bonus there, even though you don't want to just eat them as a table apple per se. That's a great idea. I'm going to make a note of that and see if I can grow a crab apple tree down here. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. Unfortunately, I'm not sure with their zoning there, but they're pretty prevalent up here and they don't get real huge if you keep them pruned. You know, you can keep them pruned. They're not one of the really big um, apple trees that kind of sprawl out and get real tall, at least not the ones here. So it's kind of nice to be able to tuck that in the orchard because it doesn't take up too much space. Right. Yeah. Now, um, so it's funny because your soil sounds like it's fairly alkaline because the blueberries don't do as well down there because you got so you guys put them in pots, right? And our my soil here is actually on the acidic side. It's not. It's it's about a six on the pH scale, which is fairly acidic. So blueberries do pretty good here. I still add a little bit of acidity to my blueberries, but for the most part they're okay. And so raspberries and everything else just is fabulous. So, do you have any tips um, to 
as compared to like your berry bushes, like the blueberries and the raspberries and some of your garden plants can be kind of picky when it comes to the pH level of the soil on what they thrive in. Are fruit trees as, as picky as well? I have not found that they are as picky. Um, I have not done research on that. What I have done mainly is as I'm driving around town or talking with other gardeners, asking them what, you know, what, what are you growing? What um, fruit trees do well um, in your soil? Mm-hmm. And the I do that is because I really want as low fuss garden and orchard as possible <laughs> because I you know we just we get busy and unless that's what you kind of do full time it's really hard to take something that doesn't isn't supposed to grow well in your area and and tend to it every day to make it grow well so um so that is what we have done I, I've talked to our county extension agent quite at at length about what varieties do well and and even if you know other varieties are at you know the nursery um unless it's a local nursery but you know if i'm going into lowe's and the nursery and there's all these different varieties there i probably i try not to buy unless i'm absolutely sure that that variety will do well here um which is hard for me because i'm really an impulse garden buyer (laughs) But, you know, there's no one there to really talk to that grows fruit trees. Most, most of the garden workers are wonderful, but they don't, they're not always gardeners. And so, um, so that is one thing that we do. We just try to grow things that we already know, by, based on other people's experience, will grow well here. So I haven't really researched the soil um, as far as what, you know, if a peach tree is going to do well in our, with the, pH soil that we have. Mm -hmm. Um, I will say that we are very diligent to make sure that we keep the grass cleared from our, um, from our fruit trees to help with the water, um, with the grass, not, um, you know, not taking up all the water from the trees. And then also um, use wood chips on top and and mulch and compost on top of our, uh, that area, that bare area. Um, to, just to make sure to keep the moisture in and to keep those microbes, you know, growing and all the healthy soil down there for the for the trees. Yeah, because you guys are quite a bit drier than we are here. But I do try to keep the grass from under the immediate part kind of up on above where the roots would be on right. pulled back too because grass is just really great at like and to pull all the, you know, the nitrates and the nutrients and stuff out and kind of stealing them. So... I try to do that too, but I, I'm kind of like you, you know, we have fairly acidic soil and I can't grow citrus, but we haven't had too much of an issue. Um, our soil, because it was um, some forest, so it had a lot of um, organic mulch already on it when we, where we put the trees in that we had to clear them out. Cause the one thing fruit trees do like at least um, is lots of sun to get your fruit ripe. So you want to make sure when you're planting your fruit that you're putting it in an area that's not too shaded at least that's where I'm at now I don't know I'm assuming that's the same for you as well it is yes even with our hot summers um the fruit needs that sun to ripe and most of our fruit is ready um you know in late July early August um and plenty of time before it really really gets hot (laughs) Okay. What's your guys' <laughs> average, like in this, like I say, the, in August through September, then what's kind of your normal the hot summer temps? 
Uh, usually in the very high 90s, low 100s. Okay. And usually experience that from mid, from, um, it usually will hit 100 around mid-July, and then we'll stay high 90s, low 100s until mid to late September. Okay. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> You're quite a bit warmer than us. You know, if we hit 90, we're dying here. <laughs> Even, you know, you get over 80, even 85. That's a pretty warm day where we're at. So, <laughs> right. right. And so our garden, we're like our garden break is during that time period. Really only, and this isn't, you know, about fruit trees, but for us, peppers and okra are the only thing that grows during late July, August, early September. And so that's when we have our, our gardening break. So it's great if you know that. And you plan on not having a winter break. You plan on having that that summer break for your garden endeavors. So, um, but that's what part of why it's important to find varieties that that you know grow well in your area. And you know, I would say the researching and talking to people and utilizing your county extension office is really really important. And making notes because you think you'll for, you remember, but you don't, or at least I don't. <laughs> that is so true. And I'm, yeah, in fact. I've even started, this is going to sound funny, because we, we practice um, crop rotation in the vegetable garden, especially, mm-hmm. and so, not with the fruit plants, obviously, because they stay where they're put, but, <laughs> <laughs> um, and I always think that I'm going to remember each year where I've planted everything, but we've been on our, our homestead now for, um, oh my goodness, nine years, and so when you use the same garden spot, it tends to run together where you've put things and trying to remember each year. So I've been trying to just take a picture. If I don't even write it down that I at least take a picture so that I can tell where everything is from the year before to plant with. But that is so key on writing things down because you won't remember. I love to think that I will, but I don't. (laughs) Right. Right. And it costs you money in the long run. Like we, um, we had two apple trees that we planted last spring. One made it, one didn't. I forgot to write in my notebook which one I planted where. I just knew I had two apple trees and I was done. And so since the one didn't make it, I now only have one apple tree, but I don't know what variety it is. So last fall, we had to replace the apple tree. But instead of just replacing it with one, we had to buy two because I didn't know which one I had. So, um, you know, really, that was a good lesson for me, a reminder that I really need to write everything down. I just cannot remember varieties and where I put stuff. And I think I will, but I won't. <laughs> You're right. And it, it can get costly, actually, to re, yeah, to have to go back and, and do that or relearn just because you forgot. And so then you have to, like you said, you have to take those measures because you didn't record it down. And so I'm really excited because Angie has a gardening notebook and I have a little one that I just kind of have scratched out on notebook paper that is nothing, nothing to talk about. (laughs) But yours is really cool and I wanted to share it with you guys because not only is it for record keeping, but you, you actually have links and articles. It's kind of like everything that you need to get you started if you're new to growing a garden Plus then all the record keeping for those of us who've been gardening longer or doing it more extensively to keep everything straight and in track for us. So do you want to kind of share a little bit about what all is inside the gardening notebook? 
Sure. Um, I started keeping a personal gardening notebook about 15 years ago when we started really gardening. And I kept it for probably 10 years. And I'm not sure exactly how this happened. But one day when we were cleaning the house, get, getting ready for company, it got put in the burn barrel. Oh, <laughs> no. Gardening notebook was gone. Every single note. I cried. I don't cry often, but I cried over that one. And I decided to not figure out who, what child did it, so I wouldn't hold him against <laughs> it. <laughs> uh, so anyway, I started rebuilding the notebook, and my husband at one point said, "You know, there's a lot of good information in that notebook. You should you should um, do an ebook with it." And so I did. And what is in there is all. Um, there's a short how-to um, beginning section, which has. Um, you know, links to how, to how do you find your county extension agent? How do you find, um, you know, your, your frost dates? You know, all these important things that as experienced gardeners, gardeners throw out there like everyone knows, but beginning gardeners don't really know some of those things. Um, how do you find out how many chill hours you have? Um, and then the next section goes into, um, there's plant profiles. The whole notebook itself is about is a little over 120 pages long. So I've got some plant profiles for common um, vegetables that we grow, that most people grow, tomatoes, carrots, um, kale, um, all the different brassicas. There's um, a place for you to write when you plant in your area and what varieties are good for your area. And we have those for um, the the fruits and vegetables, and also for herbs, and a section for ornamentals, which my ornamental section is empty because I'm really not an ornamental gardener, but I know that some people are, and so we have that in there for them. And you can write, you know, um, things that you've just observed for your garden. Um, maybe there's a variety that you tried that everyone around you loves, but your family couldn't stand or it just didn't grow well for you. You know, you can make a note in there, do not grow. XYZ tomato anymore, <laughs> you know, because you've tried it and it's not worked for you. Uh, because sometimes, I, I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes so um, I romanticize over all those seed packets and the, the you know, the, the seed catalogs that come and I think, oh, I just want this and I want that and it's going to be so beautiful and it's going to be so wonderful. And it, it isn't always. And so this helps me remember what varieties we thought were going to be amazing and just weren't for us. Um, there's also uh, where you can lay out your um, your garden. It's got graph paper in it so you can actually um, uh, make a, make a um, diagram of your garden and know where, what you planted and when. Um, there's a section on pest management, which is really, I feel like, important. There's some organic solutions in there and then there's just pages for you to print up so that you can um, as you're dealing with certain pests that you can make notes of what you observe and what is working for you um, there's a garden calendar of things to do each month and you know the things that you do each month are going to be different than the things that I do each month because our climate is so different and that's really important I read a um, on a blog the other day that is from someone up in um, Pennsylvania and it was gardening chores for March well what she's doing in March we're doing in January and so it it's really important that that we keep our own notes so that we can know what um 
you know, what we need to do in our, in our, for our climate. Um, then I have some blank pages of plant profiles so that you can pr uh, print up your own. And then um, there's expenses. I think it's really important um, for homesteaders to track their expenses because sometimes our endeavors um, really just become expensive hobbies. Mm -hmm. And that's okay as long as we're honest about it. Um, I had a friend who was spending, um, who was spending almost $1,100 on feed for goats and chickens a month. Wow. And yes. Wow. <laughs> and they, she wasn't really using them like she thought she would. She wasn't selling enough eggs. She wasn't selling them at a at a good price, at, at a, a price that would help her break even. Um, she refused to sell the goats to anyone who might um, use them for meat. And so it became a very, very expensive hobby. And and um, until she actually started tracking her expenses, she didn't really realize, I mean, she, I think she knew, but she didn't, it was very eye-opening for her to realize how much um, these animals, who were really are not livestock, they were pets for her, were costing her each month. Um, there's a seed and plant purchase record sheet. Um, there's just all kinds of, there's a, my favorite part is, um, there's a journal on the back by month where you can do things like just write down your observations for the month. This was very handy for me as I realized that our year, our gardening year is vastly different than most of the rest of the United States, including even the Northern parts of Texas. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that that's important. It keeps when I when everyone else is is um, showing all their beautiful pictures of their garden in um, in August and September, and ours is brown and dead and just hot, and we just think it's never going to end. Um, I can look at the observations we had for for last year, and I can know okay, this will end, <laughs> and we're going to have green again. It just isn't yet, and and. I think to be a successful gardener or um, orchard keeper, it really is important that, that while we look outside and at what other people are doing, it's really important to also look at on our homestead, on our, our property, in our um, climate, um, and really embrace that and um, make notes about that, make observations and really learn um, what is going to work and what is not going to work. Yeah, because so. that's true. And because gardening really is customized to exactly where you're at and what you want to do with it, you know, how much you want to put into it, not just monetarily wise, there's that too. And I love the expense keeping part because sometimes we think that we are really saving money by raising it all ourselves, but it's good to, to have the actual black and white facts there to, to figure that out. Um, we raise our own beef cattle here and, and pigs and meat chickens as well. And if I don't keep track of all of the feed, then I really don't know if I, you know, I do know what's going into it. So I know the quality of it which is for something, right. but I think it's really important, like you said, to keep track of those expenses, to, to see what it is costing you, um, and just to keep an eye on that as well. And, you know, it's funny because a lot of times, even if you go by your zone, for example, we're all in the same, where I'm at, I'm in the same zone, but I'm kind of nestled up in the foothills 
not kind of, I am up in the foothills of the mountains. And so my planting time, even though I have the same average last frost date as far as plugging in your zip code and stuff and finding that online to the towns about 40 minutes that are closer to the coast than us, we have about a two to two to three week different actually plant time of when we can direct sow some of our seeds. So I love that you say talking to your local county extension office and really talking to your neighbors because the people that have gardened in your air quite a while can save you a lot of heartache and a lot of frustration. And most of them are so super willing to share. I mean, I don't think I've met a gardener yet when I asked him a question who didn't answer and try to help me. Absolutely. Gardeners are the most generous people with their information ever. I mean, and especially if you find some older gardeners or people who gardened for many, many years and uh, maybe because of their health, they're, they're not able to garden like they used to. They are always so very excited to share their information with you or even to share, um, you know, we, we've had people, um, you know, give us their canning jars or, um, you know, or this tool or that tool because they don't use it anymore and they want to see them being used and they're just so um, excited to see um, young families continuing those um, those skills that they had raised their families doing so so and I want to let everybody know um, so I'm gonna there'll be a link in the show notes to Angela's gardening notebook because um, that is available for purchase and so you can check out and kind of get a over a look at it see inside it peek inside it and check that out so if you just go to melissaknorris.com and click on the podcast button this is going to be episode 51 so we'll have all the resources and the different things that we were talking about there for you so you can access all of that and we are just about out of time for today's episode but I want to thank you so much Angie for coming and joining us today and for sharing your knowledge and I'm super excited to go get actually another cross-pollinating variation of a cherry tree this weekend and so I'm going to totally be thinking of you when I plant it in the ground Oh, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much. It's been fun chit-chatting with you. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on. And then um, stay tuned, everybody. We'll have the latter part of our show here in just a second. Hey, guys. I am super excited today to share with you um, in our regular spot of our verse of the week and our book of the week, I have a surprise. I have a special guest with me today, and her name is Mary DeMuth. And so we're going to actually flip things up a little bit, and I want to start first with what I'm reading this week, because what I'm reading is Mary's book, The Day I Met Jesus, written with Mary and Frank Viola. So Mary's here visiting with us today. So welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I am, I'm really excited. When I first got the book... I wasn't exactly sure what to expect because it's written in a little bit different style than just your typical fiction book or your nonfiction book, devotional. It's kind of a marriage between the two. Um, do you want to share a little bit kind of about how that format works? Yeah, and, and you're right. It is. Uh, we've looked around to see if there's anything else out there like this, and there really isn't. Um, not that I want to be super unique, but it is kind of cool that it's, it's different. So it starts with a story of a woman from the New Testament, an actual woman, and um, that's reimagined based on uh, a lot of evidence and uh, research and, of course, obviously based on the scriptures. But um, I spent some time just kind of imagining what, what might be their backstory, what brought them to that place where we see this little tiny snapshot in the New Testament and then we never really know what happened before or after. So 
Um, that's the first part of each chapter is this long story about maybe the woman at the well or woman with the issue of blood. And then the second half is a working out of that section, which is um, the nonfiction side and more of the devotional side, which is what Frank wrote. I wrote the fiction side. Okay. Element to it because, you know, Jesus taught a lot in parables and telling stories. And quite frankly, for me, um, it's actually been fiction novels that have really that actually brought me back to a close walk with Jesus. Um, I went through a period of my life, um, actually I had an ectopic pregnancy, and I lost uh, the baby, of course, with that. And my aunt brought me a fictional book, and it was a Christian fiction book. And that book, God used that book to bring me back to him. So fiction has a very um, unique place in my heart because it so moved me um, and just been instrumental. And so I love that you guys have the fiction element in the book. And that's what you read first in each chapter is the fiction story based on, based biblically. And like you said, you guys did a lot of research actually to make sure that things, even though the fictionalized parts went with biblical and the research of the time and stuff, which I think is fascinating. I'm one of those people, I, I'm kind of like a history geek. I love those interesting tidbits and facts from history. Um, and I'm sure you guys actually probably had a lot of those that went into working into the novel just to make sure period-wise that it was there. We did. And, you know, that just, of course, it can't be perfect. You know, I, I always think, oh, there's probably something else I could have added. But, yes, we definitely researched it. And that was fun as a novelist to uh, weave in those details into the story and the historical stuff. And it was great. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. Um and so it was funny because when I sat down to read it, I mean, of course, I was excited because I've read many of your books, actually, and I've read Frank's books as well. I actually helped him on uh, Jesus' Favorite Place um, as well. And so I was familiar with both your writings. So I knew it was going to be good <laughs> because I'd read you guys before. Um, but I had to say I wasn't expected. It, it's very moving. And I'm only a few chapters in. I've read the, the first three um, stories. In fact, I sat down and read another one this morning so that I would be fresh um, for for our talk and stuff. And each one has brought me to tears. And I, I'm not a super crybaby. <laughs> so I don't cry a lot when I read. But it's it's very moving and it's, and it's very powerful. And for me, um, I was reading this morning. Let me flip open here real quick. It was on um, the chapter, The Diary of a Prostitute Who Loved Too Much is actually the one and so that is where she goes to just give you guys real quick she um we have jesus and it's the woman who comes and she washes his feet with her tears dries them with her hair and pours the perfume it's kind of the the end of the fictional story that we see um and that's based on that part of scripture and what really took hold of me when I was reading that is because we see we're at Simon the Pharisee's house. Jesus is in his house, and this is where she comes. And a lot of the times I I am more judgmental than I should be. And a lot of times I don't even intentionally realize that I'm being judgmental until I go back and examine my thoughts and, and the way that I felt in a situation and, and really realize so that I'm working on, that God's been working on with me. And so when I was reading that, I was just struck at how how like the Pharisees I am, and even when I don't want to be. But then when you get into it is how I withhold that forgiveness 
to myself that Jesus has given us. Like I, I hold myself in this spot away from him because I get caught up in the shame of, of what I've done or that I'm being judgmental instead of going to him and accepting the forgiveness and moving on with him. And so I thought what really touched me, and especially in that one, was that the woman accepted his forgiveness for her and she didn't try to hold not that it didn't come back, but she didn't hold on to that, her past and her shame, like tight-fistedly, that she let, she accepted Jesus and accepted that forgiveness. And so it was very personal and it was very moving. Yeah, it's an interesting story. And what I love about that is he, he I mean, he, at, at, um, while everyone else was looking on with aghast, like, how can she do this? And she was, you know, touching his feet, which is a big no-no, and, and actually quite sexual to let your hair down and all this stuff. Like, she wasn't doing anything right in that sense. But um, instead, he welcomed it, and he welcomed the perfume, which she garnered that perfume through prostitution. So the wages that she used to buy that were her not only her livelihood, but were gained through you know, so a non-savory <laughs> act. And so, and yet he accepted it. So here's, you know, here's Simon creating this amazing banquet and, these, and this woman comes in and Jesus essentially doesn't accept Simon's perfect banquet, but he accepts her imperfect offering of uh, something that was gained through prostitution. It's pretty wild and crazy. And that's, that's one of the things um, I came away with as I was writing the book is just, how out of the box Jesus is and how he defies our expectations and he constantly did that with the Pharisees and and even with the disciples where they they wanted to make him be a certain thing they wanted him to conform to their image and he just would not and he would you know go out of his way to talk to the woman at the well which is the longest conversation recorded in the um the four gospels in and it's with a woman and I just think that's awesome and how interesting and it's a theological discussion and and it happens there in Samaria which he shouldn't have been hanging out in and with a woman and also with a sordid past so you know he he really messed with convention and and they couldn't really do anything about it and they were probably always like whispering behind his back like what's he doing now I'm so embarrassed but that's what he did yeah, and it's funny because I did not realize that the letting down of the hair was so taboo. You know, like when I, I didn't realize it in that time that that was, um, I think it was um, kind of when the, in the takeaway part where Frank wrote that he, he said that basically that's like a woman today going topless, a woman yeah. letting her hair down in that time was kind of the same like, <gasps> and, and I didn't really realize that that was the, you know, that it was taken that way and in that context and that in that time period. So that, like you said, these things that she's doing were really quite outrageous. And I have to say, if I'm being honest, and I was sitting there, that I probably would have been more like the Pharisees than I care to admit, in my opinion, at that, of, you know, of what she was doing. And so, yeah, that was just really to show that, his, you know, how his love crosses. And how, too, because... She was doing those things that were considered taboo, but he knew her heart, and he knew what her intentions were. And right. so I love, because that's what Jesus does. He doesn't look at the circumstances like we do, but he just goes straight to the heart of it. And so I just think that's amazing, and that we get to see that um, throughout the book. And that's, I mean, that's really why we wrote it. We wrote it because... We wanted to show Jesus through the eyes of an actual person. I think we forget that these women and all the characters, so to speak, of the New Testament, we think of them as characters and not as human. 
And when we look at Jesus through these very frail human eyes, we begin to see things about him that we just never thought were true. Or we maybe just, I guess that's our goal, is so people would discover Jesus afresh, that he would also um, violate their boundaries and mess with them a bit because he's not safe, as C.S. Lewis says um, when he's comparing him to Aslan, he's not safe, but he's good. And so I, I think that's one of the more compelling parts of, of the narrative is just you get to meet Jesus in a brand new way. You get to put your feet into the sandals of women that, that you know, gritted their feet along the pathways where he actually walked. And you get to understand through the cultural context just how, how, uh, how different he was, how, how, what, how unexpected and how out of the box he was. Yeah, no, I'm really excited to finish it. In fact, I'll probably spend time tonight <laughs> with a box of Kleenex now. I know going in <laughs> that I'm having my Kleenex right next to me um, as I read it. But I also wanted to um, share, too, with everybody. So the book just released. It's only been out a week, correct? Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. And so through March 17th of 2015, so I, that's next Tuesday, I believe, mm-hmm. um, you guys have a special deal going on for anybody who purchased the books, and it's some pretty cool stuff, actually. So I'd love for you to share with everybody where and how to go about getting those um, specials. Sure. Um, we partnered with a bookstore called Parable, and they're also online. And so if you go to parable.com, they will give you the book at 50% off, which actually beats Amazon's price. It's pretty cool. And if you buy it from Parable, then you get seven freebies, including um, kind of behind-the-scenes interviews and some uh, free ebooks to help you grow in your relationship with Christ. So it's really quite a cool bonus. Um, and again, it will just come to your inbox about a day after you've bought it. Um, Parable will take care of that. And Another place you can kind of find out a little bit more about the book is thedayimetjesus.com, where we also have like places for you to share your testimony about the day you met Jesus, and um, and more information about the book and endorsements and things like that. Oh, that's awesome! I love that element of people sharing their story because um, really that's our biggest testament is you know what when we met Jesus is how we changed us, and so yeah. I never tire of hearing people's stories like that. So that's yeah. awesome. Um, Yay, I'm excited. Now, I got. I didn't realize that there was the website like that, so I'm so glad you told me so I can go check it out and, and play there. Um, and so we're going to go back to our verse of the week. And so I just want to have you share any verse that's just really kind of speaking to you or that seems, you know, is important in your life right now. Sure. Um, the one that I keep coming, Corinthians 1, 26 through 29. And it says this, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. What I love about that is that's my own story. I feel like I was one of those, you know, unnoticed, uh, foolish kids running around this world, and God saw fit to notice me, and he, he confounded the wise by cho- choosing the foolish. And you look at these women in the New Testament that we, that we show, um, all, all of them had a, a bit of marginalization going on in their lives, or all of them were broken and hurting, and yet that was the very thing that caused them to reach to Jesus in the first place. The woman with the issue of blood, 
she had nothing left. She had no community because she was constantly bleeding, so she was outcasted and not touched. And, you know, been with doctors and everything for 12 years and no cure. And so, by golly, she was desperate. And in that desperation, she reached for Jesus. And that's pretty cool to me because I think in our weird Christian culture, we think the people who have everything together together are close to Jesus. But it's actually the broken, the maligned, the hurting that know their need for him and experience his presence more keenly because they actually reach for him. They actually know their need for him. Whereas if you're not either, you can be in control of your life. You don't need Jesus. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. Because I know, and I had no idea the emotional impact that the writer goes through in writing it and how much you learn as you're writing it. I mean, spiritually, it's probably been one of the biggest places that God has grown me, but in that, the most brokenness at the same time um, and relying on him. So thank you for doing that. <laughs> now that I, I see a little bit more of what goes into that. Um, and like I said, I can't wait to go back in and read more of that. Um, and then you also, Mary's website, Um Mary has a great blog and she blogs very openly um, and from her heart, a lot about a lot of hard issues. But frankly, that's the issues that we all, as Christians, need to talk about and support each other with. So I would just encourage you guys. And I'll have a, a link in the show notes to everybody who's listening um, to all of these different things and highlighted for you, so that you can go and, and grab those real quick in one spot. And so that's melissaknorris.com. Click on the podcast button, and it's episode number fifty-one. So thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing your heart. It's been my pleasure. Bye, everybody.